Hello, everybody. I'm Brian Levine. Welcome to The Gould Standard, a podcast brought to you by the Glenn Gould Foundation. We bring you conversations with some of the most remarkable people from all across the world of the arts. If music, theater, poetry, film, painting, novels, or even digital blockchain art are your spiritual meat and potatoes, come on in and join the feast. Now, while you're stopping by at our humble inn, please do take a moment to press like, share, and subscribe. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please kindly leave your reviews, pose your questions, and be part of our community of friends and supporters. And to get more Simply Wonderful words, images, and sounds, you can pay a visit to our website, www.glengould.ca. And while you're wandering around there, you will undoubtedly notice a donate button. We are, in fact, a registered Canadian charity, and we do rely on the support of listeners like you. Please do give generously. Today, our guest is a trailblazer in every sense of the word. From her childhood in Waverly, Nova Scotia, she has gone on to build a global career, not only as a classical singer, but also as one of the leading advocates of contemporary music today. She's an artist who makes this seemingly rarefied and challenging musical realm instantly accessible and compelling. She's noted for building powerful working relationships with leading composers of our time and has given more than 75 world premieres in everything from song cycles to major operas and concert works while still maintaining a strong presence in traditional classical music with a repertoire that spans a jaw-dropping period of more than 400 years. As a performer, she's a charismatic presence with a voice like liquid silver and a physicality that immediately draws the audience in. But if that weren't enough, ten years ago, she set her sights on the podium world, taking on the challenge of orchestral conducting, a world that is changing but still skews heavily towards male maestros. What's really unique is that our guest not only combines singing and conducting in the same concert, but sometimes does both simultaneously in the same piece of music. With her fame as a conductor growing by leaps and bounds, you might think that would be enough, but no. In the midst of all her other engagements, she decided to create Equilibrium, a project dedicated to mentoring young artists in the critical early stages of their professional careers. She is the winner of Grammy and Juno Awards, honorary doctorates, and has been named to the Order of Canada. And in 2020, Denmark's top music award, the Leonie Soning Prize, which has also gone to such artists as Igor Stravinsky, Miles Davis, Leonard Bernstein, Birgit Nielsen, Keith Jarrett, and Benjamin Britten. Well, who else could I be talking about? The pride of Waverly, Nova Scotia, and in fact, all of Canada, Barbara Hannigan. Barbara, welcome. Hi, Brian. Thank you. What an amazing introduction. I'm very touched. Well, it's um, only what is due because, you know, you are an amazing artist. uh, By the way, before we get too far, I do want to say that we are recording this on St. Patrick's Day. And with the the name Hannigan and that red hair of yours, I do have to assume that a touch of Aaron is in your lineage. Absolutely. My dad's side has the Irish blood and they... They went from Ireland to Bucktoosh, New Brunswick, generations and generations ago. We still are, are proud of that heritage, and we always used to celebrate St. Patrick's Day as children, including with green cream of wheat for, for St. Patrick's Day pre- breakfast. Oh, th- that sounds painful. Well, I, <laughs> I, I hope you'll forgive me for saying that in my traditional tall cup of coffee, 
a little drop of fine Irish whiskey has found its way just to help us mark the presence. Wow, that's great. Well, I'm having a cup of tea and it just has honey in it, so I'm a little uh, more chaste uh, than you today. Well, that's all right. It's, um, it's fine. I might actually uh, trip on a few words, and if so, you'll know what, what caused it. <laughs> yeah, you have an excuse. So, Barbara, you call Paris your home base, but where are you today? Today I'm in London, and that's because, well, I'm actually in quarantine because I have an engagement on Sunday this week. But, you know, with the requirements, you have to come in with a negative PCR test. You have to take a PCR test on day two. And then you can do something on day five, which is called pay to release. So tomorrow morning, I'll have an 8 a.m. PCR test. And once they give a negative uh, result to that, I'll be released from my quarantine, which allows me to go to rehearsal on Friday. Oh, wow. So you said pay to release. That's kind of like bribing your parole officer, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's interesting because in France, all the COVID tests are free. I mean, the PCRs and the quick tests, they're all free. And you can have as many as you want or need. But in London, I will have paid more than 500 pounds for COVID tests alone. Wow. Um, <laughs> wow. to be able to sing this concert with the London Symphony and Simon Rattle. So. Oh, well, that's uh, that's kind of worth it. I hope, I hope that, you know, they yeah. might consider picking up a piece of the tab for you. Oh, they are. They oh, are. That's they're, good. they're very generous. Yeah, no, I'm super looking forward to it. That's good. Will you have an audience or will that be uh, kind of no, streamed? No, it'll, it'll be streamed on uh, Medici TV. Yeah, live stream. And then I'm sure they'll keep it up later. So... That's, that's that great. And, and if you don't mind my asking, what will you be singing? Well, I was supposed to be singing a piece that I've done more than 40 times called Correspondence by Henri Dutieux. But because the orchestral forces are too large for that, for us to be able to do it, uh, Simon asked me if I would sing two pieces that I've actually never sung before. One is Knoxville, Summer of 1915 by Samuel Barber. Barber, right. And the other is Offrande by Edgar Varese. And yeah, and they're both pieces that I'd always, always, always wanted to sing. So I'm very happy, even though it's like just one performance. I'm learning them and memorizing them just for one performance. But I'm really, I'm so grateful for that opportunity because I just, I love both works. And to get to do them for the first time with Simon and London Symphony is and you're you're running quite a gamut from the more conservative side of 20th century music to you know kind of way uh, out there at least yeah. you know Varese was considered way out there in, yeah. in his day yeah yeah it is quite of an out, quite an out there piece it was written before the barber and it was written while Varese was in America and premiered in New York but it's a very special piece that's great so yeah. we we've touched a bit on how the pandemic has affected you this past crazy awful, difficult year. But one thing that I, I know was on your your to-do list for a long time was your first Mahler fourth conducting. Mm-hmm. Uh, did that ha- end up happening? It happened. Hey, I did. Yay. Yeah, it happened in September. It was supposed to happen last May in Munich, and that was canceled. It, it definitely happened in September in Gothenburg in Sweden, and uh, that was a very exciting moment. 
And because we didn't have an audience, and because, you know, I was singing and conducting the piece, so I sang the last movement. And because we didn't have an audience, I didn't actually turn around at the end and face the audience because there was nobody there. So I sang the last movement towards the orchestra, but I didn't conduct it. And I just lowered my arms and faced them and sang, and they played it so beautifully, and it was a very special moment of communion, I have to say. That's a kind of a, a, an old carrion thing. You know, he used to, oh, yeah. at a certain point, just sort of close his eyes, stop moving his arms. I don't know whether he actually lowered them, but yeah. he would just sort of drift in the, in, in the moment. Well, you know, the child's v- vision of heaven, it's kind of, kind of a bit of a respite that we all need these days. You know, that yeah. kind of purity and simplicity. And mm-hmm. you know. Let's talk about, you know, how you got to this really singular career place. You started life in, in Waverly, and Waverly is a pretty small place. I, I checked, and the population is still a little under a 1,000 people. Oh, yeah? It? it says about 850, actually. Oh, yeah, okay. The wiki, but who knows how current that is. And it's just north of Dartmouth, so not what anyone would call, you know, a highly cosmopolitan metropolis where you hmm. would likely encounter the works of Schoenberg or Varese or Boulez or Stockhausen. Mm. So I really would like to explore how you got from the kind of world that you grew up in and the kind of music that you were exposed to, to, you know, becoming so immersed in in works that a lot of people still are sort of exploring very delicately with one toe in that hot tub of water in case they get burned. Uh, So what music did you grow up listening to? The records that we had at home, we had had children's albums like Danny Kaye reading Uh the stories, The House of Baba, Baba Yaga or something like this. And we had Sesame Street records and... We also had lots of Carpenter albums, the Carpenters and John Denver. We had some classical albums, some Bernstein albums, some, I think we had Night on a Bald Mountain. We had some Mormon Tabernacle Choir uh, LPs. But classical music, or let's say just music, was always, always in the house. My mom played the piano. Her mom, her aunt had played the piano. We all started piano lessons when we were very young, and our mom used to sing with us, taught us to sing. She had had tapes of us as really small children singing. So music was always part of our life. It wasn't, you know, let's say not, it wasn't like intensely modern or far-reaching. Even I didn't even really know who Mahler was until I was in my late teens but that didn't really matter. I mean, I loved music. I had wonderful music teachers all through school and private piano lessons, singing lessons, you know, so I, and my sister is also a professional cellist in Montreal. So we had really a high level of music education and discipline. And I think even more important is, is the, the word discipline, because we learned how to practice and how to get good at something. Did you have any contact with Kaylee culture, you know, the Celtic music world? I think everybody does to a certain extent in Nova Scotia. Like, I wasn't heavily involved in it. Some of, there was like, I think there was some Highland dancing at the school and swords, sword, you know, the dancing on the swords and so on. But I was never really into that. I was more involved in events with like the Nova Scotia Choral Federation, the Nova Scotia Kiwanis Music Festival, 
girl guides, of course. And yeah, that was, those were kind of my extracurricular activities as well as sports and so on. Right. And, and at a certain point, you found yourself at the Etobicoke School of the Arts here in Toronto. Um, How did that come about? Well, I don't exactly remember how I found out about the school. But anyway, when I was in grade 11 in Nova Scotia, I I found out about this school and I decided that I wanted to apply. And my mother's sister lived in Toronto and I applied to the school. I went to Toronto. I did an audition. So it would only have been for my last year of high school. And I did an audition and I was accepted in both the theater and the music departments. And my aunt allowed me to live with her. I lived with both my aunts. And this was amazing because they opened their house to me and I went to ESA, the Etobicoke School of the Arts, for my last year of school. And that was a life-changing experience. My singing teacher in Nova Scotia had met Mary Morrison at a conference, a singing teacher's conference, and she wrote a letter of introduction to Mary Morrison to ask her, to introduce her to me and to ask her if she would please listen to me and recommend a teacher for me in Toronto. So quite soon after I started at the Etobicoke School of the Arts, I went to the University of Toronto to do an audition for Mary Morrison in her studio and thinking that she would recommend a singing teacher for me. And instead, she decided that she would teach me herself. Which, And I was 17 years old, and this was another you know, extraordinary experience. So Mary took me on, and then it was just a natural progression. I auditioned for the University of Toronto. I was accepted, and I continued my studies with Mary into U of T. So right. And, and for, for those of our listeners who don't know, and I assume that that means that they're outside of the Toronto music scene, Mary Morrison is really one of the great uh, music teachers, also very deeply connected with contemporary music in Canada. Her husband was Harry Friedman, one of our, our great Canadian composers. She is still with us at, I believe, 95 years old now, and she is a force and mm. you know has helped guide and shape many, many wonderful singing careers. And you asked, Brian, you know, how did I get to the contemporary music? Well, while I, I always had a very good ear and I was always really good at sight reading and very interested in all kinds of music, it was when I started studying with Mary that she heard this capacity in me. She recognized it very quickly and she knew that she had to help uh, nourish this this musical mind and, and soul. And so she sent me to the library. She put me in the direction of the different concerts. I was going to concerts every single night, you know, array music, new music concerts, continuum, esprit orchestra, as well as Toronto Symphony and so on. And And it was actually very soon after that, like I think by age 19, that I made my debut with new music concerts, and I started working with Continuum Contemporary Music Group. And so I was performing and premiering works at, at age 19. And in fact, my wor- first world premiere was while I was at Etobicoke School of the Arts. I commissioned a song cycle for my graduation recital. So it was it just became a very natural part of my musical life. And I didn't, I didn't think that it was 
special or strange. I just thought this is this is normal for me. And, and that's really, really something because you know, let's face it, there are lots of people people who you know go to concerts with Beethoven and Brahms wow. and mm. you know Liszt and Schumann and you know all of those guys, and when they hear contemporary music or you know you know. I mean, I don't even think of Schoenberg as contemporary music. I think of him as part of the classics now. But they think um, it's music that has no discernible melody, and melody is a big part of what, you know, appeals to them in the music. It's harmonic structure isn't as, you know, it doesn't fall within the traditional, you know, 800-year evolution of Western music as as they perceive it. And, of course, the word that you hear still to this day over and over again is, it's so dissonant. Yeah. I think they mean, <laughs> by which they, I think they mean unpleasant. Here you, you are really at a very early age. And I, I guess the one thing that, that really strikes me is music without melody could still be instantly appealing to you. That, I think, is a remarkable faculty. Yeah, it, I suppose I, I think it also... In a way, it helped liberate me vocally because um, maybe I had, you know, a few insecurities or inferiority complexes because I hadn't come from this extraordinarily knowledgeable musical background. And yet, so I I was coming with a, a little bit of insecurity and also a lot of curiosity. And I felt whenever I was performing pieces that didn't have 100 recordings... I felt somehow more confident. And, you know, I always, I think my, my feeling has always been to lead from strength. And my strength was my musicianship and my imagination and my curiosity and my discipline. So those things really lend themselves well to contemporary music. And I was able to develop aspects of my voice and technical aspects of my singing that I probably wouldn't have been so easily able to do if I felt the weight of tradition on my shoulders. And of course, you know, there are, other than the composer, there's really not a body of tradition to tell you, now that's not the way it's supposed to sound at all, or that's not the way it's supposed to be phrased at all. So you, you really, in a way, become a bit of a, of a co-creator with the composer, particularly oh. if, if he's or she isn't there to say, yeah, no, 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 that's, that's really not what I meant. You, you, you do have that freedom. You do. You're, you are working in collaboration with the composer, and you're also working very, very much from the score, as opposed to from what can happen in a tradition of singing a song, well, oh, yes, it's written this way, but in fact, everybody does it like that. Whereas when you do contemporary music, and in fact, when I do all kinds of music, I'm much more interested in what has been written on the page and how can I bring that construction to life. And so, yeah, I feel, I feel that I have been a kind of, let's say, like maybe a midwife for a lot of pieces with different composers with whom I've had uh, direct contact and certainly a facilitator for contemporary music, absolutely. And it, it really is interesting. I mean, it reminds me of a documentary about Glenn Gould that was made in the late 50s, very early in his career. And of course, you know, he was passionately engaged with Schoenberg's music at a time when, you know, not 
all that not everybody was right he was having a conversation with heinz unger who had come from europe and was a great champion of the 12 tone school the or as we in the smart set say the dodecaphonic school (laughs) sorry i just had to had to drop that i couldn't resist anyway and unger was saying look even though i love this music i have to admit it's not natural you know it's not something that you know people ordinarily take to and Gould said I completely disagree I think if you if you kidnapped a dozen children and took them to a desert island and only played them the music of Schoenberg Webern and Berg they would by the time they were three or four be you know working out their own nursery rhymes in tone rows and and I think well that's an experiment we don't get to try but I don't know I I mean I love Webern Schoenberg and Berg but I have to say, the the 12-tone school, the whole serialistic way of writing, is extremely difficult for the ear. And I would like to think that my ear is very developed, and yet I still find it super difficult. So if, I think if I find it difficult, I would hope that a three-year-old child also would find it difficult. <laughs> yeah, it, it, well, I think it, it, it is the the formalization of i mean you certainly sense with for example earlier in Schoenberg's career before he had kind of come up with the the system that there was a slightly freer approach to you know writing outside of out of the traditional harmonic forms well but, and he talked about the emancipation of dissonance and that's very interesting because while he was doing that, they were also doing the same thing in America. There was a French composer that moved to America named Dane Rudyard, and he was talking about exactly the same thing with his circle, which in- included Ruth Crawford and Charles Seeger and some other right. composers. And I think, yeah, it, it also, there was a political aspect to it as well, to emancipate the dissonance. It was really interesting to, with, to think of it in that, in that way. Right. And, and you know, one of the things that I actually think is remarkable about the 20th century musically, I mean, in the, the classical music world, but also in you know the popular music world, in the evolution of jazz and so on, is that it moved simultaneously in so many completely different directions. You still have, you know, composers writing very good music that is completely tonal. You know, you have polytonality, you have microtonality, people like Conlon Nankaro. You know, you have people inventing new musical instruments like Harry Parch. Harry Parch. So you've got essentially, you know, what was, I wouldn't say a single linear stream. It, It was a mixture of different national styles and different personal styles and so on. But, you know, within a, a fairly defined compass suddenly just breaks apart and explodes in all different directions as as diverse as Webern to Stravinsky to Shostakovich to, you know, Boulez and Stockhausen within the same, you know, really 75 or 80 years. Yeah, it's extraordinary. It's extraordinary. I mean, it's interesting because people often ask me, what kind of contemporary music do I like? And I don't have a particular kind of contemporary music. There is, I wouldn't say, oh, I love minimalism, or I love new complexity, or I love new romanticism, or I love serialism. No, for me, it's always the individual voice. It is the particular composer and their authentic voice that I'm interested in. So there are some composers that work in minimalism that I'm very drawn to. 
There are some electroacoustic composers who I, I really like to work with. There are serialists, et cetera, et cetera. But it's never like one particular school or style. Right. Well, we're, go- we're going to explore some of the people that you have been an advocate for and whose music you've really brought to life in a, in a spectacular way. But since I, I happened to, to mention that encounter between Glenn Gould and Heinz Unger, you said to me once that Glenn Gould was, you know, a significantly influential figure in your own musical life. Can you mm. elaborate on that a little bit? Well, I remember the day that he died, and it was announced on CBC Radio. And I was just a kid, but I remember there was like, my mother brought us together and told us who he was and that he had passed away. So I also, I mean, he was and still is an absolute hero, musically, artistically. I mean, as, a, as an artistic soul, of course, I, I do love the way he played. But what I also love is his, his ability to stay absolutely true to himself. You know, the, he was really good looking. He could have just been a star and made tons of money and, you know, lived the high classy life. But that wasn't his life that he wanted to live. And to, to, be, to create a situation that he could do what he wanted to do, how he wanted to do it, whether it was radio documentaries, whether it was television documentaries, you know, there's one where he's talking about, I think it's Hindemith trumpet, piece for trumpet and piano, he's talking about it and describing it, whether it's doing Facade by William Walton and having fun with that, and of course all the countless recordings, recording Schoenberg, Strauss even, it's conducting Siegfried Dill. you know, this I just, I think, yeah, I mean, that's an extraordinary example. Do what you want to do and what you need to do that will feed your artistic soul. And it's more important to do that to satisfy oneself because that personal satisfaction will radiate to others as opposed to the other way around. If you try to satisfy everybody, it's not, tr- it's not authentic. Right. And, and of course, he really didn't care that much if, you know, his approach to this or that composer, you know, i.e. Mozart, um, you know, rubbed people the wrong way. He felt that if you weren't saying something that was both authentic but also reflected a new perspective, that essentially it was a ritual process, not a, a right. living piece of art. Yeah, and I totally agree. And I'm sure that my part of the courage that I have to to do that, for example, with the Haydn symphonies that I'm doing, I do a lot of Haydn symphonies now, I make my own parts, have my own articulation sets of parts, I really come with the set. And I, I think people like Glenn Gould helped give me the courage to do that. Because when I'm true to myself, when I have something to say about this symphony, and I feel like I'm coming at it with a like a kind of archaeologist or an excavator with a light that is shining on particular things that I would like people to look at, in a way, a kind of curator. That raises some very interesting... I mean, your comments about the courage to... and also your collaborative relationship with with composers, it actually reminds me 
of something that Philip Glass said when he won the Glenn Gould Prize. And I don't think that Gould ever performed any of his music. And, you know, he got up on stage at the National Arts Center and said, I'm really sorry that I didn't get to know him. I'm really sorry that I never got to hear him play any of my music. Because, you know, a lot of people complain that he would mess around with the composer's notes and ideas. He said, with a mind like that, you know, it's just go at it, change it. You know, mm-hmm. I would feel privileged to, to have whatever mm-hmm. creative contribution to what I started, because, you know, you can, through your performance, finish it. And yeah, yeah. it was it was a very gracious and a very humble thing. But it also, I think, reflected a realistic acknowledgement that, you know, as the composer, you don't fully create the work. It only yeah. comes to life when it's performed. Yeah, and actually, I... I know that the pianist Vikingor Olofsson played uh, some Philip Glass pieces. Actually, it was the last concert I heard before the lockdown in France. And uh, it brought me to tears. And I was talking to Vikingor after we had dinner. And he told me that Philip Glass had exactly that reaction to his... Because he had kind of gone through the pieces and changed some of the phrasing and rearticulated things. And, and I... And Philip Glass was very, very supportive of that. And I think something that I learned, I think from all of my experience, but maybe also through someone who was a big mentor to me, the, the Dutch composer, pianist, and conductor, Reinbert DeLeo, is that you, you do have to take the piece from the composer and you have to bring it to life. And there, there is sometimes... I mean, the way I remember Reinbert describing to me, he made a gesture. He showed me what he meant when he said, you have to take it from the composer. And you can feel that resistance sometimes. But one must incorporate the piece, and that doesn't always happen in the way that the composer imagined it. And I've seen this before. I've also seen composers be extremely enlightened in a way, like surprised by the way that someone has taken a piece of theirs. I've had moments when I kept insisting to a composer that I felt that this one section didn't work and that they should change it. And when it finally was changed, there was this amazing realization that it was better now or that it had finally arrived into the right place. So it's this kind of adjustments that happen. And I think it's really, really a a truly, if one is willing to invest everything that has to be invested, it is really a collaborative effort. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it sounds, in a way, a little presumptuous to say, but you know, if a composer is writing work that is really great, then there is more in it than she or he knows when they're writing it. You know, yes. and that will come out over over its life of performances. And you notice that now, I mean, if you look at the people that have, have analyzed, for example, works by Debussy, or, um, they find all, the, all these things in the music. Also in Boulez's music, I remember yeah. I went to quite a few lectures where his music was being analyzed, and Boulez was like, I didn't know I, re- I did it like that. <laughs> I didn't realize I had made such a complicated... St- you know, of course, he knew many things. He was extraordinarily right. complex in his compositional style, but there were even things that others were finding that Boulez wasn't consciously aware of. Right. And and it's interesting that, in a way, that perspective is what made him such an interesting interpreter, um, mm. especially of, of 20th century music. But, you know, he also, for example, did a 
a really remarkable, you know, it's a big orchestra, not sort of historically informed recording of Handel's water music. And it's it's absolutely remarkable. I've never heard that. With the New York Philharmonic, Philharmonic. yeah, oh back goodness. when he was the music director, um, which was probably a, a tempestuous relationship, I would think. Tell me a little bit about your first experiences performing in Europe. Uh, were you ac- ac- accepted immediately? Because my experience with people in the European musical world is they have pretty well-established ideas and presumptions about people from here, people from there, you know, this or that style. And so was there a perception that you were, you know, sort of from the wild backwoods and, you know, you were a bit of an exotic primitive and <laughs> and so on? Well, I would say that my European career really started in the Netherlands And it actually started quite soon after I got there in 1995. I was doing a kind of opera school in in The Hague, at the Royal Conservatory of The Hague, but I was also performing professionally quite quickly after I arrived, both in the early music field and in in the contemporary music field. I do remember audience members especially being quite excited that I was from Nova Scotia. You know, and, and I do remember on a few occasions, people will say, well, do you, what kind of culture do you have there? You know, but on the other hand, I was, I, I quickly kind of became one of the first call people for the contemporary music, first in Holland, and then it expanded until I was, I was, you know, working all over Europe in the contemporary music field. And it was in 1999 that I I gave the world premiere of an opera by Louis Andreessen and Peter Greenaway, which is called Writing to Vermeer. Yeah. And this was kind of a hit to this piece. I mean, you can imagine Peter Greenaway and Vermeer. And Louis Andreessen was a big star in, in the Netherlands, but also, you know, very well known internationally. And this opera went, I mean, we started in Holland. It was sold out. I played the girl with the pearl earring. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, it was cool. And the opera was spectacular to see. We had a stage that was surrounded by a moat of water. And at the end of the opera, at the back of the stage, a flood of water came down from the back of the stage and just flooded everything. It was extraordinary. Oh, wow. There was a cow. There was a cow. There was a cow. Yeah. And anyway, it was pretty, and there was film, and it it went to Australia, it went to London, it went to New York. It It was really an extraordinary experience, and that kind of set me firmly into the the European scene, and people just called me on the phone. I mean, even the first time I was hired by Berlin Philharmonic, they just rang me up on the phone. That's 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 fantastic. I had that perception because of a personal experience, actually. Well quite a few personal experiences, but you know, back in the days when I, I was in the record business, my, my record label undertook a, a really large-scale survey. Survey is too ambitious a word. That's The repertoire is too big, but exploration of Latin American classical music, which, of course, is predominantly 20th century and, and contemporary music. And we worked with sort of the flagship orchestra of the El Sistema Music in Venezuela, the Simon Bolivar Orchestra, for a lot of the recordings. One of the releases came out, and it was a composer, originally Cuban, but then Mexican composer, named Julian Orbón, who wrote very, very little music. A lot of it was suppressed by the Castro regime, and, you know, so his output is very small. And a an American music critic that I knew 
just fell in love with this piece and thought it was one of the great discoveries of the year. And I was at the music industry trade show, Meetem, and ran into this critic, and he said, that is such a great recording, you have to meet my friend Siegfried, you know, who is the editor of the leading record review magazine in Germany, Phonoforum. So he dragged me over to the Germany stand, where Siegfried was, and he was the perfect stereotype of sort of the postmodern German academic, you know, very thin, very pale, very cultivated, little round glasses, all dressed in black, very tight slacks, you know, and my slightly more disheveled uh, uh, American critic friends said, you know, you've got to hear this record, you've got to hear, it was made in South America, and it's, you know, it's the, the most incredible music, and the orchestra plays, they play like gods, and, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and the editor of Phonoform looked at me in absolute befuddlement and said, um, Latin America? And I said, yes. You mean, like, South America? I said, yes. He said, you mean to say they have classical music there? And I said, not only do they have classical music, but this one country, Venezuela, has more orchestras than you have in Germany. <laughs> and, he, and he said, it is not so. <laughs> so <laughs> we, had, we invited him to, to see our next recording sessions down there, and he was pretty astonished and wrote uh, actually a very gracious article. And unfortunately, Latin America got its, its revenge because he went to a beach club and spent about five hours out in the equatorial sun with that extremely pale skin. So sadly, he turned into Lobster Man the next day. Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I didn't, I mean, I have to say I, w I felt very welcomed in Europe. And uh, I think people were fascinated and still are fascinated that I'm from, from Waverly. And I get asked a lot about it, which I'm happy to speak about because it was such a wonderful place to grow up. But I, I think I've, you know, I mean, musicians among musicians, we're, you know, we're looking at each other in a very, we're looking at how are we as, as music, as music makers. Yes. You know? Yeah. Well, I'm glad to hear that and that you didn't, you know, have any, any real barriers or presuppositions. But then, of course, in contemporary music, you know, no one can really afford to have too many presuppositions because yeah because you never know what's going to happen right exactly well, let's let's talk a little bit about some of the the breakthrough works that really helped to establish you and you, you've talked about your work with Andres and I certainly think about your work with Ligeti whose name I always feel fear I'm mispronouncing uh, because I've heard it both ways and I've been lectured with equal conviction about Ligeti or Ligeti <laughs> so you know but with Ligeti, it sounds like something in a will, you know, the legacy of this estate. So, and I particularly think about the astonishing performances that you've given in Mysteries of the Macabre. Now, how did your relationship with that piece evolve? Well, the first time I was supposed to sing it would have been at a festival in Gütersloh in Germany, a Ligeti festival, and that would be with the Schoenberg Ensemble and with Reinbert DeLeo conducting. And in fact, that first performance was usurped. I mean, I did it, but actually just before it, I had gotten a call from the Toronto Symphony. And I think what was what had happened was Oliver Nassim was supposed to come to Toronto and do a concert. And he was unable to come. And so they had to replace the entire program. 
And I had told Gary Kalesha that I was going to be singing this Ligeti piece in November in, in Gutislow. I guess there's maybe 2000, I don't know when it was. 2001, I guess, maybe. And uh, that I would be seeing it in Gutislow, and if he ever wanted to do it, you know. And so the opportunity just came up like that. And I remember the Toronto Symphony calling me and saying, you know, we'd like you to do this piece. Gary will conduct, and there'll be two concerts. One will be at Massey, and one will be at, at Roy Thompson. And at the Roy Thompson concert, would you also sing Mozart? Okay. So I did yeah. concert aria. And that's that was the beginning for me of... I mean, I, I did the piece for memory for the, from the very first time I sang it. it. Of course, it became a calling card for me. I, I, I kind of staged and costumed the piece. It became a real show piece. A lot of people copied it later, which was funny. They either copied the outfit or... And I think it was, it was nice because it, in a way it, it made the piece really a crowd pleaser. And yeah, but For those who, who don't know, and, and of course, you can, I think, find it online to take a look at. This is, you know, you are basically in your kinky boots, and uh, yeah, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. I was wearing a kind of because I was supposed to. It's a, it's from the opera, and uh, I'm supposed to be the chief of the secret police. And so you're supposed to have some. I mean, in the opera, you have various disguises, and I thought it would be funny to do it in a kind of. I thought, what would be completely distracting? What what outfit would make people? like go cross-eyed and completely not be able to concentrate on anything and I thought okay well I'll go on to to Young Street into one of those shops and I bought some really high-heeled black boots and a long black leather coat and a black Louise Brooks kind of wig and really disguised myself and a short skirt and so on and so on and it was it was very fun and that's more or less the outfit I wore for all the concert performances I did of the piece and I also used that piece as my conducting debut, which was at the Châtelet in Paris in, I think, 2011. And I, and I continued to sing and conduct the piece, and sometimes I would still sing it. And then finally, the very last time I ever sang it and or sang and conducted it was with the London Symphony Orchestra and Simon Rattle. And that was in January of 2015. And because it was being filmed and I'd done it so many times in the old black outfit with Simon, I decided I had to change it up a bit. So that I wore, so for that I wore something also equally distracting, which was a kind of skimpy schoolgirl outfit. Ah. And, and that video went viral, at least for classical music. And uh, yeah, so it was a real calling card for me. What did you say? Oh, 
I memorized the piece. I sang the piece extremely accurately. The thing that Ligeti said to me when he first heard me singing in Gütersloh, he said, came up to me with his arms open and he said, you learned my piece. Thank you. (laughs) And that's the thing. I mean, it's not something that you can, I think occasionally you see people try to fake their way through it, but you, you can't. I mean, you have to really, if you're going to do it, you've got to do it right. Yeah. yeah, that includes like a diminuendo on a high D, and you know, doing your best to get those tempos in order, and uh, it's it's pretty hefty amount of work. It's it's a lot to sort of coordinate in your in your mind simultaneously between. Yes. Well, particularly because you know your approach to it, in a sense, it's a concert piece, but you bring a lot of movement and particularly yeah. when you conduct you sort of merge being a character with the the function of conducting it in yeah one. because the character is a control freak and the character is a little bit paranoid and nuts so in a way i'm doing a kind of parody of a of a conductor who has gone too far and <laughs> it's very fun you know it was it was a great way to make my conducting debut because i could uh i could pretend that i was someone else and that made it a little bit less scary for me. But it, as far as other, other you know, pivotal pieces in my repertoire, I would have to say, I mean, if I worked with a lot of different composers. I would have to say singing Plis Salon Plis with Boulez was a huge experience. Written on Skin by George Benjamin. Yeah, I re- really want to talk about Written on Skin because it is, uh, well, I think it is a, a contemporary masterpiece, one that people who think still that opera is you know kind of back in in the days of Verismo and Verdi and Puccini and who really want an entry point I mean there are lots of great entry points you know Britain would be a great entry point or Wozzeck or Lulu would be a great entry point but there is opera being written today that is astonishing and powerful and complete drama with music that is that makes it all the more complete and that is certainly one example it's also a profoundly disturbing piece if you don't mind my saying yeah Uh, it is it was disturbing to create i can tell you that because it was just around the corner from where i am now where we rehearsed it for the first time because we rehearsed it in london and then we went to aix-en-provence to finish the rehearsals and bring it to its premiere and then i toured it all over the place god we, we we went to Vienna and Toulouse and London. We were at the Royal Opera House with it twice and New York and and then concert performances in Toronto and in London and a German tour and I, I, I went everywhere with it. It's an extraordinary piece and George Benjamin has become a good friend. I also premiered his opera after that, which was called Lessons in Love and Violence. It's a, it's a disturbing piece. It's written, written on skin. is about um, a husband and wife in the Middle Ages who are childless, and a young man comes into the home. The, the wife is illiterate, and as w- most women were in those days, and the husband is a bit of a tyrant and a power-hungry person. And he, they have an estate, and he brings in a young man to to create a illustrated gold, you know, one of those gold books. the the woman, the wife, and the young man have a illicit love affair, and she, in a way, becomes liberated because of this. And then at the end of the her husband finds out. At the end of the opera, the boy dies, 
by the hand of the husband, and the woman kills herself to escape him. And, I mean, you can imagine creating this opera, it was overwhelming. It took a, a heavy psychological toll uh, at the time. It makes me remember when we had the rehearsals in Aix-en-Provence, we were, we were really kind of the party cast. And I think it, because there's always different opera productions going on in Aix-en-Provence at the festival at the same time, and our cast was just party cast. And it's so strange because we were doing such an intense opera. Right. And, it, and I think it was because, you know, later looking back, I think it was because the opera was so heavy that we just had to release, you know, more often than I did when I did Peleas and Melisande in Aix. And, and Lessons in, in Love and Violence is also medieval, but very different because it's a it's a royals kind of story and there is you know what we think historically was a a true gay relationship between king edward the second yeah and and his and court, favorite. court favorite yeah gaveston yeah and i play the wife who edward didn't really i mean we had two kids but and yeah, that was an interesting role to play. I said to George, well, it's too bad I don't get to die. Like I really, yeah. most operas I'm doing, I, there's some big catharsis. And actually in Isabel's case, she doesn't have a big catharsis, but it was very interesting to play. I had an electric cigarette in my mouth for the whole show and a gin and tonic in my hand and just deteriorating over the course of the opera. It was, it was really fun to play, to play the baddie. But I would say Written on Skin was such a, such a huge part for me and it was right after I did Written on Skin in Aix-en-Provence I sang my first Lulu and the combination of working with Katie Mitchell singing Written on Skin and um, doing my first Lulu with a director who became incredibly important in my life and still is Christoph Arlikowski this this was kind of the breakthrough for me you know I was 40 years old um, and I was coming into my own it was the same it was around that that time that I made my debut as a conductor so I was really starting to take ownership of all those years of investment and I just kept going from there and Lulu gave me an extraordinary amount of strength because anyone that's sung that part it's just a marathon and if you get through it if you can do it you have courage to do other things right because you you managed and and Lulu as a character, is a fascinating and, and in some ways, a seminal character, both in terms of, you know, I mean, it, not only in music, but in a sense in feminist literature, uh, in, a, in a way. Um, oh, totally. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, you're totally on the same page as me. Yeah, she's a heroine. I mean, she the thing she says is she's true to herself, and she has been since she was 15. And I mean, part of the reason for that is what she endured up until that point in her life and how she survived, basically, abusive relationships. And she becomes... I mean, I, I can't stand when people say she's a femme fatale because I think she's so much more than a, a right, stereotype. Right. She's absolutely um, a, a person who knows herself deeply and is true to herself and is an inspiring character to play. And... And, and in a sense, I think the character, your character in Written on Skin, Agnes, comes to that kind of self-realization and, oddly enough, through her suicide, self-actualization, because she it's an act of defiance against, against you know, the tyrannical husband. 
absolutely husband. Yeah. yeah and i think also having done written on skin with katie mitchell directly directing and lulu with varlikovsky directly and then later on doing productions of peleas and melisande one was directed by katie a new production and one was directed also a new production by varlikovsky was extraordinary because they're both incredible directors extremely different both feminists and how they looked at the female character was, I mean, it just, I loved it. I love working with them because yeah. you're really, <laughs> I mean, Katie is almost militant in her messaging, whereas Varlikovsky, it's, I wouldn't say it's hidden, but it's, there's more glamour right. in, in his, there's more glamour. And, uh, but I, I have learned so much from them both and continue to and of course what one of the the things that is striking about lulu just from the superficial plot point of view is how she meets her end because she does fall prey to jack the ripper and in a way i think it's an invitation dramaturgically to take what is essentially you know simply a name and a headline she was a victim of this you know, and she was a woman of, as they would have said, low character in in those days, and to realize there's this this enormous story, this enormous interior story behind that superficiality. Absolutely, and I mean, my feeling has always been that the Jack the Ripper relationship is a choice of Lulu. She's well aware. She had always said that she would not uh, become a prostitute. So I think she chose Jack the Ripper because she knew she could finish her life. It was an assisted suicide. Right. Have you met, have you gotten to know Friedrich Cherha, who finished the, the opera? Uh, well, Cherha wrote a piece that I premiered. I wouldn't say he wrote it for me because we didn't really have any contact about it, but he wrote a piece that I ended up premiering on a, on a festival, and I have met him several times and so on. And I did sing the three-act version at La Monnaie in Brussels that he had written, he had orchestrated the third act. And when I did the opera in Hamburg, I did another version of the third act. Because Alban Berg, of course, did not live to complete the, the opera, no. so it really fell to to Cherha to, to complete it. And he, he's still with us, isn't he? Another inspiring nonagenarian. Yeah, yeah, amazing. I'd also like to chat a little bit about your work in, with Gerald Barry, because, you know, the the pieces that you've done with him are also thematically extremely varied. You know, Bitter Teas of Petrakant, um, Importance of Being Earnest, right. which, you know. Uh, and the Strindberg play, La Plus Forte, which was a, a piece for a solo opera for soprano and orchestra based on a Strindberg play, and Alice in Wonderland. And, yeah, the work with Gerald, well, I heard Gerald's music when he was played by Array Music in Toronto. This would have been around 1990, 91, 92, somewhere around there. I think 92. And I was like, who is this? This music is extraordinary. It was frantic and fast and energetic and electric. And, and so I met him at that time, and I didn't work with him until... I think it was something like 2004 when I sang his opera at English National Opera, The Bitter Tears of Pedro von Kant. And then after that, he asked if he could write, maybe it was 2005, and then he asked if he could write La Plus Forte for me, which was the Strindberg play, which I did in many places, including with the Toronto Symphony. 
and and then I was part of the importance of being earnest. I played Cecily, and I was Which part of Alice wonderful. in Wonderland. Yeah, I played Alice. Yeah, undoubtedly becoming a lifetime favorite of Stephen Fry's because, of course, he's he's enraptured with Wild generally, but that that play in particular. Oh, Ernest! It was a really great production. Well, I wouldn't say production because we did it. We did it concertant, but it was it's a wonderful piece. And Thomas Otis conducted it, and I remember. Thomas standing beside me in the performance while I was Cecily, and I had like a fascinator hat on my head and this turquoise kind of dress. And Tom, there were a few lines in the piece, and Tom would be conducting, and he would just be laughing while I was singing. He'd be going, (laughs) (laughs) while I was singing. It was such a fun piece to do. I really, I think of all, I think of all the Gerald Berry pieces Ernest was, in a way, the most fun to perform. It was like the Olympics, in a way, what the other singers had to do, the Algernon, and, I mean, it was extraordinary. And the audience laughed so hard. I remember at the Barbican, they just cracked up. And this is not, you don't hear people laughing so often in opera. I mean, not so many composers are funny. Haydn is still funny. Right, I find Rossini actually pretty funny. But, yeah, yeah, uh, Rossini's yeah, funny. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But again, when it's when it's a good production that really knows how to how to get the laughs out of the both the libretto and the music, and that actually is, I think, one of the really interesting sort of leaps forward in opera since the twentieth century, which is you know certainly in a lot of Italian opera, you'd have to say that most of the librettos are not high art or great works of literature and the evolution in the 20th century of librettos and and this is an overstatement because you do have great librettos i mean lorenzo da ponte wrote great librettos for for mozart and so on but it's kind of up and down and, and it doesn't stop the operas from being great and beautiful music and and you know working dramatically but you do get great literature you know starting in the 20th century being combined with music in opera, like, for example, with Strauss and Wozzeck, of course, and, and so on. So you're now exploring operas and, and bringing to life operas that have very, very interesting librettos. Yeah, like The Rake's Progress. That was the, the first opera I conducted, which was in 2018. And the libretto, I mean, I'd sung the opera in Banff and also in Switzerland and in Portugal, maybe somewhere else as well, I don't remember. But I conducted it in 2018 in Sweden and on a European tour and in California and in England and Holland and Germany and France. And that's an incredible libretto. I mean, it's, it's by Auden and it's, it's extremely complicated. I mean, even for English speakers, I don't, you know, you have to really you go, what, what does this sentence mean? I mean, even just to read it, let alone to hear it sung. But it's, I mean, I think that's something that the musical life, especially as a singer of texts, that I am so appreciative of because I've been able to learn so much about writers, philosophy, poetry, history, all these things which I'm very interested in and which I can explore simply by nature of of the texts that I have to sing and then, you know, studying them and going down the rabbit hole of, of what you're going to learn once you try to figure it out. And, and then you get to do facade and turn your mouth inside out. Yeah, yeah, facade. Oh, God. You can't <laughs> do that piece when you're tired. That's for sure. 
I did once and it wasn't a success, but you have to be, it's, you know, it's, you really have to be on top of that text. Right. You've said that you can tell almost immediately whether you like a contemporary score or not, that it's really fast for you to, to find whether it's, it's going to, to resonate with you. And I imagine that since you've become very successful and, and one of the, the real leaders in, in this field, you get a lot of scores offered to you. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I have to say, Brian, like, people send me scores, and I, it usually takes me quite a while to look at them. Because I'm working all the time. I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm working really long days. I still feel like I don't have enough time to study. I still don't finish everything on my to-do list. And I work really hard. But it, I do, when I look at a piece of music, I feel something that has to do with the architecture of it. And I suppose there's, yeah, there's something usually that leaps up. It's the same thing when I hear a singer audition, you know, I usually know very quickly if this is an artist that I would like to hear more of, uh, if this is somebody that I'd like to work with, if it's somebody I'd like to follow their development. So it's kind of the same with, with a piece of music. And there's not that much that I don't like, but there are certain pieces that I'm particularly drawn to. And Yeah. When you're giving a premiere, you're obviously performing a work that nobody's ever heard before. And at the the start of the process, as as you get into rehearsals, nobody but the composer, and perhaps not even completely the composer, has an idea of how it's supposed to go, at least in all of its details. Hopefully by the end of rehearsals, the performers and the composer will know, but the audience is completely fresh to this material. And as they say, first impressions are lasting impressions. And in some cases, it may be the impressions that they form of that composer and their entire work. So does that give you a sense of added responsibility that you really, really want to to be a powerful advocate for, for you know, a new piece? Yes. And I go usually as far as I can either to memorize the piece for the premiere or to get as close to memory as I can because the less material that is between me and the audience whether it's a clunky music stand or or just my thoughts yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know it it brings the immediacy I want to be in a kind of connection heart-to-heart connection with them as much as I can so I do try to do most things from memory when possible but I also accept when that isn't possible or whether you know, a situation of attempting to do something from memory could jeopardize the piece. So, I mean, for example, Plea Salon Plea, I didn't even think about doing from memory with uh-huh. Boulez. I needed the score in front of me, and I was more free with the score than I would have right. been if I was bound to to forcing Boulez to cue me, uh, you know, certain things. Yeah, and I, I think it is a very delicate thing, a premiere, and sometimes a piece doesn't actually find its place in a premiere it it often can happen later or a piece sometimes you even have a piece that gets resurrected you know 15 20 years later and all of a sudden everybody's very interested in it i mean you mentioned conlon nankaro earlier in the conversation and he's somebody that had a real renaissance in the last 20 years yeah absolutely and also you know just in in listening i mean i i love historical recordings and it's very interesting to hear first recordings of works that have 
gone on to become standards. I think of some early recordings of Sibelius symphonies, and they sound very different from the way the same works have come to, to sound in terms of phrasing, balance, tempi. You know, a lot of the dynamics are still being worked out in those initial performances. Yeah. And eventually they settle into... They kind settle. Of a, yeah, a different, a different place. Yeah, yeah, you're totally right. That yeah. happens. That yeah. really does happen. Yeah. I'd like to chat a little bit about some of your other collaborators and the work that you've done with them. The Ludwig Orchestra in Amsterdam, can you tell us a little bit about them? They seem like a really interesting ensemble. Yeah, they're really cool. Uh, so Ludwig is a collective of musicians. They were basically a kind of phoenix that rose out of some very severe and almost violent art cuts in the Netherlands where like entire orchestras and ensembles were dying, were just there was no funding anymore. All of a sudden, the government just cut their funding to the point that they couldn't survive. And this happened and still happens in Holland for so many arts organizations. It's extraordinary. Yeah, we think of Holland as a, as a place where the culture is very much alive, and that's, that's changed a lot in the last 20 years. But anyway, Ludwig is this group of musicians, many of whom play in the radio orchestras, who created their own collective that goes from solo players right up till full orchestra. They are all responsible for themselves, meaning there's nobody sitting at the back desk of the second violins who's lazy. I mean, everybody is present, everybody is prepared, everybody is so happy to be there. And they're a project-based orchestra, so they, they only do the projects that they, that they want to do. I started performing with them in 2013, and or maybe no 2012 and then we we made some albums together we've been on tour together we did the rakes progress my crazy girl crazy album my more recent album la passione was also with them they're just i mean many many of them i actually knew since i first got to holland in in 1995 there were a few of them that i met actually at that time so so it's a very long relationship almost 25 year relationship and they're doing they're involved in music and brain research which fascinates also me. Yeah, yeah 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 they're yeah. they're yeah they're they're extraordinary and they also have a project that has to do with water and the water in the world and it's, yeah they're they're really really interesting ensemble i'm i'm really looking forward to seeing them i have a concert with them in may so i'm very happy about that oh, that's that's great and you've already mentioned him but since we lost him early last year i think just before the start of covid reinberg de leo um who really is a towering figure for well for music generally but for contemporary music what was your your working relationship with him like amazing I knew him since 1999, at least personally I knew him since then, and prior to that I'd gone to many performances of his and I'd met him, but we started working together in 1999. I was singing in the Vermeer Opera and he was conducting, and then after that, I mean, I I think I counted, we did more than 75 concerts together, and we did recitals together, we made recordings together, a Satie recording and a Viennese recording we toured those programs. We had a French program. We had a Russian program. And he was and still is my lodestar. You know, he's, his guidance remains with me very deeply. I was very touched that his estate gave me quite a few of his books and also his metronome. 
which I have with me. I was just holding it. I was just practicing uh, this afternoon before we started talking. And so they gave me his metronome, and that is very special to me because that is your the metronome has something to do with your your pulse. And so to have his his pulse with me, let's say, something that I knew he was always checking and fiddling with this, this machine to make sure that he was being accurate and... Yeah, but he, his dedication to music was extraordinary. His patience and kindness to composers, it was pretty amazing what he, he let, how he let people say what they needed to say. Didn't matter how they said it. It was just he knew they needed to say it. And he gave me a lot of strength. Well, that's, uh, that's wonderful. And I think your, his legacy is, is living on in the way you carry the torch but it, it it is so important to have strong mentors who really provide that kind of guidance now i have to ask about directors and you've already mentioned too that you've had really happy successful relationships with katie mitchell and christoph varlikovsky but certainly in the broader world of opera there is this you know fairly heated discussion about the more contemporary-minded transformation of opera into more of a director's art than a singing art for high-concept productions where singers get suspended upside down and get dropped into, you know, vats of this or that and all sorts <laughs> of, of things that, that frankly make it very hard to be both good vocalists and, and also dedicated actors. Have you had those kinds of experiences? On a, maybe on a few kind of smallish productions, I might have had some directors who I, but it would have been a long time ago that I didn't think were following the dramaturgical path of the piece. I've been really fortunate, but then again, I also, I am also choosing the relationships that I have. So if I'm asked to do a production, I'm asking who's directing, who's conducting, you know, and I try to make sure that I choose wisely. I don't care if a production is moved from one time period to another. That doesn't matter to me. What I care about is, is the story being told? Is the story being told in a convincing and honest way? And I, I feel that the people I'm working with are very much doing that, whether it's Christoph Martaller or Andreas Kriegenberg or Sasha Waltz, the choreographer, or Katie or, or Gustav Arlikovsky. I feel that that's the most important thing for me. I know what you're speaking about, but I've been able to avoid those kinds of situations, which has been great. That's great. And, and of course, you know, a freer interpretation kind of sets a little bit more comfortably with contemporary opera than than some traditional opera, particularly for performers who've kind of grown up in a more traditional concept of staging and, and interpretation. Yeah. How about with conductors? Since the sort of the next step is for us to talk about your work as a conductor, your yeah. work with other conductors, and I certainly think about some notable collaborations you've had with Simon Rattle, Asa Pekka Salonen, Kirill Petrenko, and, and you mentioned Thomas Addis, who managed to be both an extremely fine conductor as well as one of the top composers in Britain, and apparently a hell of a nice guy, too. So how do you evolve a relationship in coming to an understanding of how you want a piece to go? You know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, what's been interesting for me is that I've had certain pieces like the Ligeti or the Duty of Correspondence or Hans Abrahamsen's Let Me Tell You that I've done 
like with many different orchestras and many different conductors. So the one constant of the piece was me. Right. And so, no offense to any, any conductor, but if I've sung the piece 30 times and, and Simon Rattle is doing it for the first time, I'm going to have some, some wisdom about it, you know, and some experience uh, that can only be, some, some thoughts about the piece can only be developed through the act of, of performing it and trying it with all these different orchestras. So it's been very interesting for me because, because of that, you know, I go into situations where I feel fairly confident and I'm working with people for the first time, maybe Franz Felsermust or, or Andres Nelson's or Yannick Seguin. And I can kind of, it's not that I compare them, but it's just that I enjoy what are their differences in this exact same piece. Like, how do all these different people approach this piece? What can also be written on skin, for example, which I did with George conducting, with Franco Liu conducting, with Kent Nagano conducting, and with Alan Gilbert conducting. So it's four different, really different people. And that's fascinating to me because I, I love watching the way that a conductor deals with an orchestra. They deal with the dynamics of the orchestra. They deal with the, the difficulties of the piece, the way they approach the piece, the way they respect the piece, and the way they treat the players in the orchestra. I mean, psychology is, is fascinating to me, and it's, of course, a very huge part of conducting. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I have a lot of respect for good conductors and for the amount of preparation that goes into truly being ready for the first rehearsal. And probably most of them will say that they never feel ready for the first rehearsal. Yeah. Well, I mean, a score is an immense thing. I'm always astonished by the capacity to read a complex score for those who actually conduct from memory, to have all of those parts scrolling by in, in your mental image, you know, and and that that is just an immense degree of complexity for, for the, the brain to encompass. But, but when it comes to singers, they also have to take into account things like, you know, can they get the phrase and the tempo I want within the breath <laughs> that, they, yeah. that they're capable yeah. of? <laughs> can I make it through the phrase, please? Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. And so I, I assume that at least once or twice you've had a couple of, you know, fairly pointed discussions about that issue. Uh, yeah. Well, particularly that they had a concept that didn't necessarily align with just the technical reality of maintaining a column of air, causing, you know, the, the sound to come out in, in over the duration that they, they, they had in their minds. In other words, sometimes you yeah. know, the ideal concept and, and physical reality don't necessarily meet up. Well, I think it... I, I wouldn't name any names, but I would say what I do find difficult is if I'm doing an opera production and I'm only working with the assistant conductor. If the conductor... So usually for an opera production, you rehearse for six weeks, and the last two weeks are with the orchestra. And so the first four weeks, you're in a large studio with a piano and the director and... The conductor should be there, but often they're not there and they send their assistant. And that means that they don't, the, the actual conductor doesn't get to know the production very well. And then all of a sudden, you're in front of the orchestra and they don't understand well enough how demanding the staging is and how the pauses work and how you need this and this and that. And that I f can find very frustrating, but that is more of a, an issue to do with planning 
and with presence because my feeling is when I have done productions and the conductor was there all the time, like George Benjamin or Vladimir Jarovsky when I did Hamlet and Glyndebourne, or Kirill Petrenko when I did Die Soldaten at the Munich Staatsoper. This was an amazing experience, all of those three productions, because the conductor was present at all times and was basically living the opera with us. They were there when we created it. They were there when we created Ophelia's Mad Scene or, or when I was doing these absolutely crazy things in Die Soldaten. I mean, it was, I was covered in bruises in that show. But I felt like we were all together. So it's a, I think the only thing I would say is it's a bit my pet peeve when conductors are not present for opera productions because I think they need to be there to help us all. Right. So now your own experience in conducting, I mean, first of all, some people think of conducting as, you know, sort of something you do separately from your other performing. Glenn Gould was talking about giving up playing the piano and becoming a conductor, but you've managed to keep both streams together as well as presumably you know doing some some study and training on on the technical aspects of conducting yeah what has that whole experience been like i mean that's a very broad way of saying considering a vital piece of the way you make music is and working in a different kind of collaborative way with musicians and also i think being part of a new breed i mean the autocrat conductor is kind of becoming a thing of the past I think so, yeah. Quite rare. I've, I met one autocrat conductor recently who was actually quite young, so I was surprised. But I think the conducting has been an enrichment for me. It's been a deepening of my musicianship. It's been also exercising, as I said earlier, aspects of leadership, psychology, working with groups, collaborating engaging and empowering actually my colleagues in a way I mean I I was for example last week I was conducting the complete Pulcinella in Switzerland and I I just simply stopped conducting and gave it to the orchestra to make sure that they could keep their tempi and that they could you know be much more responsible for listening to one another so that I could I could go into the areas that I really wanted to lead. And the thing I didn't really want to lead was keeping the tempo going. And so just handing over responsibility, which I feel sometimes gets lost. I mean, it's conducting for me is a way to explore repertoire that I wouldn't otherwise get to explore, like Haydn symphonies or, or being responsible for an opera production like the Riggs Progress. It also allows me to to work with other artists, to to work with with young singers to engage them and it's a natural it's a natural thing for me and I think I felt that from the very first time I did it I thought this this is there is something very natural in this for me and I I have to say having experienced your performance not only is it musically wonderful and the there are real ideas that are coming out in the scores and there's a real exploration of inner voices and balances that are clearly distinctively your own, but your podium manner feels so natural and, and also in some ways so dance-inspired. Is that, is that part of your background, and is it something that kind of influences the way you interact with the orchestra? Well, I think, I think I'm 
basically true to myself physically on the podium. And I think that is, in a way, the most important thing. Uh, if you if you're up there and you're true to yourself, it doesn't matter if you're very angular or if you're even awkward, as long as I think one is, is authentic in themselves. And so you need to know yourself. And I, I think it must be very hard for people that start conducting when they're 19 or 20 or 21 years old to be put in that position. I think it would be really tough. I mean, for me, I started when I was 40. I had a career behind me. I, I had done so many opera productions, including dance productions, where I, I became attuned to the smallest adjustment in in the body. You know, I had worked in that way with very, very distinct choreography. And let's not forget that, you know, in Bernstein's time, his entire conducting class that he was a student in had to take dance lessons. It was normal. So I think that's a, an advantage for me. I mean, I don't think of of dancing on the podium, but I do, I do realize that it kind of can look like that. And that's absolutely okay. If it's coming out of the work and if it is serving a purpose. Right. Right. So, yeah. In terms of the exploration of other repertoire, do you have sort of a, a conducting bucket list? <laughs> I have a huge folder of, of just papers where I've written down pieces that I want to do, pieces that were suggested to me by Reinbert DeLeo or by another friend and mentor of mine, Tom Morris. We have a long list, and he helps me a lot with my programs. He's really taught me kind of how to, how to make programs that, that really work for me and, uh, and that are enjoyable for the audience. And, uh, yeah, there's a lot of pieces that I'd like to do. I, I can't say, like, Bruckner is on the list. I... Since I did Mahler 1 and since I did such a, a big study in preparation for that, I, Mahler 4, I'd really like to do Mahler 1. And, you know, of the maybe the more well-known works. And there are certain operas that I'd like to approach. Wozzeck and Lulu, of course. I'd like to conduct both of those. But I'm, and, I'm guessing there isn't an, uh, an Aida on your horizon. No, there's no Aida on the horizon. <laughs> <laughs> Funny that. Yeah. <laughs> But, you know, I mean, in terms of traditional repertoire... I mean, again, you know, it's kind of like what you said earlier. I, I have to feel that I have something to bring to that piece. It's the same with my singing, you know. I When I'm making recordings or when I'm approaching certain repertoire, I think, mm, do I have something to say about this? Am I lining up to sing? You know, I've in my career, I was offered some of the traditional bel canto roles, and I said no, because yeah. I... I'm not sitting there waiting for someone to call me and ask me to sing Traviata, but there are many, many sopranos who are, and they are the ones who should be singing Traviata. You know, in my case, it has to do with, is this a piece I want to do with this conductor and with this director? That's how I deal with it as a singer. And as a conductor, I mean, there are so many pieces that I really want to explore. You know, the Scriabin, the this kind of very interesting period when we're going into the into the let's say the emancipation of dissonance, you know, when we're yeah. going from the late Romantic over into the twentieth century, that cusp I find very interesting. And and Haydn, and Haydn. I just love Haydn. Yeah, yeah, well, you and Gould both. Although as a singer, you know, you have 
you know, your Mozart is absolutely beautiful, and I'm, I'm actually interested in in hearing more of your your work in in earlier composers. You you had at at one point oh, as yeah, part yeah. of your repertoire. Yeah, yeah, I did the I did, used to sing a lot of early music when I was in Holland. I did a lot. I did pieces that were well known, like the Bach Me Minor Mass and the Christmas Oratorio, and so on and so forth. And then I did other works that were lesser known, like the CPE Bach Passion des Letzten Leidens and Scarlatti pieces. And I had a Baroque trio, and yeah, the Monteverdi Vespers and Carissimi Jephtha, and really some interesting pieces. And Rameau, I'm actually singing some Rameau at Easter in a kind of a strange new treatment. And I have a project where I'm singing new treatments of Hildegard von Bingen, Barbara Strozzi, and Francesca Caccini. Oh, fantastic. Oh, yeah, Absolutely amazing. That, that's a project with the, the Katia and Maria Labec. And, and it was postponed. It would have premiered this year, in, this season, in last October, but it was right. postponed. But that will, that will be resurrected in a couple seasons. So The farther back you go, the more it has this in common with contemporary music, which is co- greater and greater freedom in, ter- in terms of how you interpret it, because there's less yes. and less known. You know, I mean, the musicologists claim to know, but they don't really know because there were no tape recorders. Yes, and I think, I mean, we can read the treatises, which are interesting and I think important to read, but I think there's also a certain purity of sound that just seems to be right for that music, so... Yep, and and at a certain, at least from a twenty-first century perspective, you know, approaching a kind of abstraction, it is less rooted in in our cultural reference points. It it is in a in a world that's different from from our own, which again I think is is in a way kind of liberating. Yeah, I I think so too. I I guess I have that desire for freedom, but I do apply it to pretty well everything I do. Yeah, I yeah. find a way. Well, I don't think I'm disrespectful to the music, not at all. But I do feel that that's extremely important. So I do want to ask a little bit about equilibrium, because it, it seems like a real labor of love and, yeah. and a tremendous act of, of giving back to artists who are in a really pivotal and in some ways, and especially now, a very vulnerable part of their career, the the early stages. Yeah, so in 2016, I had the idea that I had a pretty strong network of colleagues and relationships, not just with musicians, but also with presenters. And I thought, it's about time to start paying it forward. So I created an initiative called Equilibrium, which is a mentoring initiative for young professional artists in that first substantial phase of their professional career. And I, I thought, okay, we're going to do the Rakes Progress and we're going to do Mozart Requiems. That's going to be our first season. And I was looking for three casts for the Rakes Progress. I had, I had something like 18 performances around Europe and in North America. And uh, Mozart Requiem I had with, I think, two different orchestras. And so, as well as works including Pulcinella, Facade, Vivier, Lonely Child, Mark Anthony Turnage piece. So I had quite a lot of stuff to offer for them that I'd programmed at various places. And I put out a call for auditions. And at that time, I had, I think I had 350 applications from 
I don't know how many countries. I can't remember. It was a lot. And I went through all the applications myself. I created Equilibrium as a nonprofit association. I involved different people from within the music field and also from without the music field. I mean, and basically I chose I chose a certain group of singers to work with, and part of our work is is doing workshops and intense learning sessions to prepare the music together. And then the engagement itself. And the engagements are with the major orchestras that I work with. So our partners are Munich Philharmonic and Gothenburg Symphony and the Danish Radio Symphony Orchestra and Swedish Radio Symphony. And, I mean, it's pretty amazing. Toronto Symphony has been involved. So, and, and in Lüneburg, we even had a workshop in Lüneburg, Nova Scotia at LAMP Academy. And so it's been a way to basically find like-minded musicians that I want to help develop that maybe are not completely fitting any label, which is something I love, that they're outside the box and helping them along their path. And I bring in guests. Reinbert DeLeo came in, Natalie Desay, Daniel Harding, Didier Martin from the Alpha label. You know, we've had all kinds of different people come in and give us their input. Casper Holton, from the Royal Opera House, Hans Abrahamsen. It's been really an interesting mix. It's growing. It's still, we've managed to have quite a few <laughs> engagements this year. It's been amazing. I mean, I just That's did one. That, that, that is startling. And, and I know, also it is startling. Very, yeah. Yeah, last week I did a complete Pulcinella, and one of my cast, my team members was Emma Nikolovska, who's a Canadian Macedonian mezzo-soprano, stunning singer. Um, so she was with us in Switzerland, and in February, I did the complete Pulcinella with Munich Philharmonic, and we had two Canadians in the cast. We had Charles C., the tenor, and Julia Dawson, mezzo-soprano. So right now, it's very much people that are based in Europe. Yeah, it's a very special, ongoing, collective, I would say, experience, which I'm leading and running, and definitely I'm very passionate about it, right. so it's it's taking a lot of time, but with a lot of joy, so I don't mind. Because you just don't have enough to do. To I just keep don't you have busy. enough to do, Brian. <laughs> and I didn't even I didn't even talk about the other initiative. I started another one called Momentum, and Momentum is I started it last summer, and if you check it out, it's leading artists sharing the stage with a younger professional colleague. And it came as a result of the pandemic where there were so few engagements that only kind of the stars were being asked to perform. And so I called up all the stars and I said, I'd like you to please make 10 minutes of a 70-minute program for a younger artist. Thank you very much. And Brinterfell has done it with the Met. You know, those from home broadcasts, Natalie Desay's done it, Daniel Harding and, and Francois-Xavier Roth and Simon Rattle have all brought on assistant conductors. We have partnerships with symphony orchestras, and I've certainly bringing on, been bringing on assistants wherever I go, getting them on the podium during the rehearsal process and sometimes even during the concert process. And so, yeah, just trying to make sure that we're we're giving a seat at the table to our younger colleagues and welcoming them and making sure that they know that we forget them. <laughs> that that That's great. And it's so important because, you know, people may not appreciate that, you know, until you get into sort of the stratosphere, you know, the, the life, let's just 
talk about the opera world. The life of uh, an opera singer is essentially a life of freelancing. You're you're in the gig economy effectively. Yeah. And yeah, if you're in the, the gig economy. Yep, yeah, and if your gig gets canceled, you don't get paid. Correct. And you know, even if you've for example, you know, let's say you're now 29 or 30 and you've come through let's say the Lindemann program at the right. Met and you've even gotten to the point where you've starred and even gotten on the the broadcasts to to the movie theaters you know what you're still basically in a position where the pandemic could essentially crush your career and it has it yeah. has yeah. crushed many careers and you're you know you're left without a leg to stand on and you know especially the younger people they haven't had time to build up savings they haven't had time to do anything like that. And so, you know, every single person that I spoke to that I asked to join Momentum, every leading artist that I talked to, they said absolutely yes, because they understand, they remember what it was like when you didn't have a, a, a real network, when you didn't have any savings, when you didn't have three years of engagements booked, you know, and what it means to have just one concert. And that every single concert counts and every single connection you make counts. Well, good on you for that because we do want there to be music in the arts once yeah. people stop getting sick. Yeah. We want them to be healthy too. I, I wanted to talk a little bit about the stresses of maintaining a you know your personal life, particularly with all the travel and irregular time commitments and sometimes very intense periods of absence. You are in a relationship with a wonderful artist in his own right, Matthew Amalric, an actor and director. You even made a film together. Mm -hmm. What is it, it like trying to, to achieve that other kind of equilibrium? Yeah. Well, I mean, the pandemic meant that we, we had so much time together, and it was an incredible gift. I mean, we just, you know, we have a house in Britannia, and I got to experience uh, life in the countryside not being on, on on airplanes it was wonderful and Mathieu and I are lucky because we are in a position that we can hop on a train or a plane or or get in the car and go see one another we're financially that's possible for us at this point in the career I certainly remember when I was younger telephone bills, you know, when Skype didn't exist and everywhere you went didn't have internet and uh, internet didn't exist. And uh, I mean, I remember how difficult that was on a relationship and, you know, it's, it's very different now. And so I'm very thankful for that. But I do think it does, you know, it, it does take care and time and reserving your time because you have these two passions. You have your your passion for the person that you love, and you have your passion for your art, and you have to, you have to make sure they both uh, get enough attention and and get enough love and care. And you don't always get it right, but I think right. you're doing pretty good. And ultimately, you know, even when you're not worried about safety, hotels can be a bummer. Even the nicest hotels. And I don't really stay in hotels very much. I actually, I usually stay in apartments. Oh, that's, even now in quarantine, that's nice. yeah. That's nice. And airports are a bummer no matter what. Airports are awful. Yeah. yeah never yeah. never enjoy airports. Yep. Yeah. Would you ever try your own hand at composing? You know, I I did study composition just a tiny little bit um, when I was in London, but it was simply to try and have a better understanding of it. I don't think I would. I mean, I've sketched a few things here and there just for fun, as little presents, little songs or something. But no, I, I don't okay. think I would go into that. All right. Uh, directing? 
Yeah, I get asked that one a lot. Well, I think I <laughs> I probably direct anyway <laughs> because I'm I'm always having quite a lot of input, but I never say never, but I I don't know. It hasn't really become part of something I'd like to do at this point. Right. But, you know, who knows? Yeah, because, who knows? as you say, never say never. And finally, mountains yet to, co- to climb, composers yet to work with. List. On my wish list, yeah. Like, I mean, every year I make a wish list, and then I tick things off it or take them off it if I'm not so interested anymore. I don't really have anything on the wish list at this moment. Like, I have some premieres coming up, which I'm really excited to do. But I'd just like to fulfill the commitments that I already have. And I'm, you know, I'm just so happy doing what I'm doing at this very time. It's hard to think too far in advance. So, I mean, I have a calendar and plans well into 23, 24. On the other hand, I I don't want to fill it up too much because I just want to wait and see what happens. Well, there are discoveries to be made and scores to learn. Learning scores, that's got to be a huge time commitment in, it in itself. So, yeah. Anyway, Barbara, for those who have been listening, I'm sure that, that they know your work, but for the few who don't, just reach out and discover it. When life gets back to normal, if Barbara is coming to your city, you really owe it to yourself to hear her. It is a unique experience. If you never thought that you could even remotely stand music that, you know, was composed after, let's say, 1950, just think again. It's it's so cool when she performs. What can I say, ladies and gentlemen, The as I said before, the pride of Waverly and, and Toronto and all of Canada, Barbara Hannigan. Thank you so much. Thank you, Brian. It's been wonderful talking to you. Thanks for asking me. So, Olivia, that was the amazing world of Barbara Hannigan. She's one of the leading performers, not only in contemporary music, but traditional classical music. And if you ever have a chance to see and hear her perform live when we're back to doing that, I really think you'd find it kind of a mind-blowing experience. So so beautiful and uh, and so moving often. Even just watching her performances on YouTube, she brings an immense amount of creativity to the space and really defies a lot of the expectations many people have of the genre. Depending on what she's performing in, it's beautiful, it can be witty, it can be provocative, sometimes it can be very intense, almost uh, emotionally shattering to see what she does in realizing a character. So good on Barbara, good on the work she's doing for young artists. And now... um, Olivia, if you'd like to share some additional information with our friends. Yes. If you're enjoying what you are hearing on the Gold Standard, we'd love for you to subscribe either via Apple Podcasts or directly on the media player at our website. 
while you're there on our website, take a look around and also visit us on social media. You can find us across Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube. We are all over. And of course, as you may know already, we are a registered Canadian charity and we rely on the support of arts lovers like you to keep creating boundless content. <laughs> so of course, please feel free to give generously. We appreciate every little bit. Thank you so much. And um, now I hear a sound approaching from the distance. Who could it be? Could it be our old, old, old friend, Mr. Edison? <laughs> Take it away, please, Mr. Edison. Mr. Edison.